all of Geronimo's followers knew he had power. This power, a gift from the deity Usen, manifested itself in different ways, or so the Apache around him whispered. He could not be killed in battle, and he could make the night stretch so warriors could be in place before dawn. Maybe most potent of all was he could know things, like where the Mexican troops would or would not appear and what was happening far away from him. Geronimo's relative, Jason Betts Nines, who was with the leader during his sojourn in Mexico in 1882 and 1883, witnessed a use of this power. Betts Nines says it happened something like this. He, Geronimo, and others were out on a raid and were making a camp for the night. They were just sitting down for their evening meal and, quote, Geronimo was sitting next to me, with a knife in one hand and a chunk of beef which I had cooked for him in the other. All at once he dropped the knife, saying, Men, our people who we left at our base camp are now in the hands of U.S. troops. What shall we do? End quote. Bethninas, nearly 100 when he recalled this moment, ended his account by saying, quote, I cannot explain it to this day, but I was there, and I saw it. End quote. Another man, who was most likely part of this same raiding party, would also relate years later that Geronimo had seen the enemy in a vision, even though he was 120 miles away at the time. Everyone was naturally alarmed by this news, and the men all unanimously agreed that they needed to return to their camp in the Sierra Madre Mountains immediately. This is a nice little story, but here's the thing. This vision that Geronimo supposedly had came on the evening of May 15, 1883. Earlier that very same day, high up in the Sierra Madre Mountains, U.S. Army officers and Apache scouts had found the Chiricahua base camp. Even if Geronimo had not had a premonition, his pronouncement that evening by the campfire was even then coming true. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 97, Inside of 40 Days. Welcome back, everyone. Last episode, we spent time re-familiarizing ourselves with General George R. Crook, who once again had been brought to Arizona to take control of the Apache situation. After extensive interviews at Fort Apache and the San Carlos Agency, Crook had decided on a bold stratagem. He would march into Mexico, right into the Apache strongholds, and bring them all back. Bold and unconventional, and just Crook's style. For this plan to succeed, he needed a few things to break his way, including his superiors to allow the operation, the Mexicans not to hinder him, and for someone among the Apache to help guide his troops where they needed to go. And here stepped in Peaches, the Sibiku Apache who left the Chiricahua in Mexico to live with relatives at San Carlos. With these parts now in place, Crook was down in the railroad town of Wilcox preparing for a massive undertaking. He had gathered together a force of some 193 Apache scouts, all under the command of Captain Emmett Crawford, Lieutenant Charles Gatewood, and Chief of Scouts Al Sieber, who is so fairly ubiquitous and who I really should do a supplemental episode on one of these days. 
Added to these were 42 cavalrymen under the command of Captain Adna Chaffee, who was familiar with San Carlos and had participated in the Battle of Big Dry Fork, which we talked about a couple episodes back. He also had 76 packers caring for a train of some 266 mules, because it just wouldn't be a crook expedition if we didn't have a bunch of mules. I will also say that in addition to Peaches, Crook also had two white mountain Apache men who were familiar with the area of Mexico they would be traveling to, in addition to a Chiricahua man who had stayed at San Carlos instead of breaking out with the rest. Finally, with him was Frank Randall, a correspondent with the New York Herald, who had a mule specifically to carry the large, delicate photography equipment of that day. This large party started heading south and made a camp along the border at the San Bernardino Ranch, then owned by a man named John Slaughter. This ranch has been in operation since the days of the Spanish, and we actually talked about the land grant for it being given way back in episode 16. However, the Apache depredations that were a regular menace to the Pimaria Alta in the 1830s had caused it to be abandoned which again is something that I also slipped in back in episode 21 when the Mormon battalion stopped at the site while marching through the area. I do love it when I can come across things now and say, hey, we actually talked about that. While stopped at the ranch, Crook made sure that Arizona would not be defenseless while he was down in Mexico. He was, after all, only taking 42 cavalrymen with him, so he made sure other troops were arrayed along the border to ensure there would be no further raiding while he was on his mission. This was also an important moment to take the temperature of the Apache scouts about their mission, and to solicit any advice about how to achieve their objective. Both historian Edward R. Sweeney and author Paul Andrew Hutton related that the scouts were all a little bit nervous about the entire operation not because they had misgivings about the mission itself, but because the Chiricahua were notoriously slippery. One scout observed the, quote, Chiricahua could hide like coyotes and could smell danger a long way like wild animals, end quote. Crook laughed off these concerns, telling the scouts through interpreter Mickey Free, quote, All right, you will see. We will catch these Chiricahua inside 40 days, end quote. Hutton also writes that the night before the operation began in earnest, there was a big dance held for the scouts, and Mickey Free persuaded Crook to let the scouts have any captured Chiricahua property. The promise of booty, plus the blessing of a medicine man, greatly increased the scouts' enthusiasm for the mission. The next day, May 1st, 1883, Crook's expedition entered Mexico. Following the guidance of Peaches, they struck overland before hitting the bend of the Bafispa River near today's Colonia Morelos in Sonora. They then proceeded along the Bafispa River, passing by several villages and a lot of deserted ranches. Finally, on May 7th, Peaches led them away from the river toward the southeast, where they began their climb into the foothills. And here is where we cut to a montage of the exhausting climb into the Sierra Madre Mountains, which Hutton describes as a tangle of canyons, thickly wooded, rocky, and steep. Geronimo biographer Robert M. Utley says the company had to traverse, quote, one looming ridge after another, each separated by a deep canyon and each rising higher than the last, end quote. 
Officers on this journey could only sum up the terrain as, quote, indescribable. Worst yet, the trail they were on went from well-established to little more than a goat path. Along the way, even five of these sure-footed pack mules, each carrying precious supplies, would slip and plummet to their deaths, one for hundreds of feet. And this one would unfortunately be the same one carrying Randall's photography equipment. Imagine having to explain that back to the home office in New York. The Apache scouts thought Randall had brought this misfortune upon himself, however, because days earlier he had ridden into camp with an owl he had captured, a bird that the Apache considered a bad omen. For days, the troops slowly, exhaustively climbed deeper into the mountains. Now, here the Apache scouts, whose training as boys literally required them to run up and down mountains, were handling it much, much better than their white counterparts. And along the way, they saw evidence of Apache habitation, finding the remains of butchered animals and cast-off items from their raiding. By May 9th, two days in, they found the remains of a camp, complete with old fire pits and temporary huts and sleeping pads. Hutton says that Mickey Free even found a black pony and a Winchester rifle here. And all of this is great news. They were getting close. On May 11th, Peaches informed Crook that they were nearly at the favorite camping site of the Chiricahua. So the general called his officers and scouts together to once again go over the plan. He reiterated that no one was to kill women, children, or men who surrendered. And the scouts agreed, but also repeated that they were ready to fight anyone who resisted, and that they would show no mercy to any fighting chief such as Geronimo or Hua. These, they believed, quote, ought to be put to death anyhow, as they would be all the time raising trouble, end quote. With everyone on the same page, Crawford, Gatewood, Sieber, Mickey Free, and others, along with 143 scouts, were given the green light to move ahead of the main party. Going forward, they entered a high pine forest, and on the morning of May 13th, they found another Chiricahua camp. This is the location we touched on at the end of last episode, where two raiding parties had been sent out, one led by Geronimo to get more captives, and the other to get supplies. The remaining Chiricahua had then abandoned this spot and moved deeper into the mountains. Finally, it was on May 15th, so two weeks since entering Mexico, and more than a week since starting to climb into the mountains, that this advance force found an active Chiricahua camp. This was mostly a Chaconan camp at a place called Bucatesca, filled with followers of Chato, Bonito, Naiche, and Chihuahua. Chihuahua was the only chief present at the moment, having just returned from a raid, which is where nearly all the other men were now. One account has the scouts suddenly being surprised by two Chiricahua who had just spotted them, but whatever the impetus, they descended on the settlement, killing between four and nine people while capturing five others, including a daughter of Bonito. And while the rest of the camp was fleeing, the scouts burned the 30 Wikiups present, along with the food stores the Chiricahua had been building, and they also captured a small herd of horses and mules. As Crook had promised, they then split this plunder up amongst themselves. This attack, which can barely be classified as a skirmish, had several long-lasting ramifications, both for good and for bad. 
for the Chiricahua, it was psychologically devastating. They had long thought their camp high in the mountains was impregnable, so they were absolutely stunned and then eventually demoralized to find Crook and his men right in their very myths. Now that even their remote mountain hideaway wasn't safe, San Carlos began to look more attractive by comparison. For Crook, however, the attack upended all his plans. This was a small rancheria with only one chief present. All the main leaders and men were off raiding. And now the element of surprise was gone for good and soon everyone would scatter. It would be a long time before they would establish one main base camp again. There would be no final decisive battle now to break the Apache. The whole slog into the mountains was more or less pointless. Finally, a rogue action taken during the engagement had horrible consequences. One of the people killed in the attack was an elderly Chiricahua woman who was shot by a scout while in the act of surrendering. My sources call this a senseless act and a cold-blooded killing, so it appears there is no excuse for what they did. Worse yet, this was the aunt of Chihuahua and a very respected woman in the village. And her killing is problematic in and of itself, which we'll get to in just a second, but it also had a horrible repercussion in another way. Enraged by the killing of his mother, Chihuahua's cousin, who had been a hero at the Battle of Elisos Creek, decided he needed revenge then and now. Seizing rocks, he brutally killed six-year-old Charlie McComas, the white boy whose kidnapping had partially led to Crook's whole operation. Now, it will take years before the Apache actually admit this. At the time, they said that the boy had been in their camp, but when Crook's scouts started attacking, he had run off into the brush and they had just simply lost sight of him. And this lie would be repeated again and again and would become the official story. It wouldn't be until decades later that the truth came out, although rumors swirled into the 1930s that Charlie had grown up a captive of the White Mountain Apache. So, reeling from the loss of his advantage, Crook had to search for Plan B. Fortunately, one had been hand-delivered to his camp in the form of Bonito's daughter, who had, like I said, been taken captive. She related to Crook that, yes, Charlie McComas had been in their camp, and that, in her opinion, most of the people would be willing to follow him back to San Carlos. After all, as we discussed last week, they had already sent feelers up to Arizona about maybe possibly coming back. And encouraged by this intelligence, Crook let her and a couple of children go and told them to tell Chihuahua that he wanted to discuss peace terms. On May 17th, two days after the attack on Chihuahua's camp, his sister and another woman approached Crook's forces. Chihuahua's sister told him that her brother was ready to talk peace, but first, Crook needed to return a prized white horse that had been seized in the attack. The general dutifully sent the horse along and waited for the Apache leader to show his face. And he didn't have to wait very long. The next day, May 18th, Chihuahua came into Crook's camp in spectacular fashion. Wearing two revolvers at his hip, with a lance in his hand and strips of red fabric tied here and there, which Hutton says were the red headbands of Apache scouts, the chief rode his white horse boldly and quickly into the camp. The scouts and soldiers leapt to their feet, no idea what was about to happen. 
but Chihuahua parked his horse right in front of Crook's tent, with poor Mickey Free running up after him to be able to translate. As the general shook Chihuahua's hand, one of the first words out of the chief's mouth were, quote, If you want to make me your friend, why did you kill that old woman, my aunt? If I was trying to make friends with someone, I would not go and raid their camp and shoot their relatives. End quote. Which, you know, is a really fair point. And with no good answer, Crook tried to assuage the chief's concerns, providing him with a little tobacco and some food. Eventually, Chihuahua got back on his horse and rode off as quickly as he came. A couple of my sources point out that, despite the sheer bravado of how he interacted with Crook, Chihuahua was covering for some deep concerns following the attack on his camp. The White Eyes had found them, even here, and that was not a good thing. Back among his people, the chief confessed, quote, It's no good, all these scouts and soldiers here, end quote. And without consulting the other leaders still out on raids, Chihuahua decided that the best option was to go back to the reservation at San Carlos. The day after Crook's meeting with Chihuahua, Chiricahua Apache began to trickle into the army camp. By May 19th, so the day after Chihuahua's bold ride to see Crook, more than 100 Apache had come down to Crook's location. Most of these were Chaconans, and they told Crook and others about their hatred for Mexicans, which is why they continued to pillage and raid south of the border. I'll just say, Crook's favorite scout won this group over by returning their horses and mules, saying that the women and children would need them for their journey back. However, everyone was a little on edge because while Chihuahua and his followers may have surrendered, there was no telling yet what Geronimo and the other hardliners would do. But they would all find out the next morning. Because on May 20th, so nearly three weeks after the army entered Mexico and five days after the initial skirmish at Chihuahua's camp, an excitement passed through the crowd. Geronimo and the others had returned. This group, spurred by Geronimo's remarkable vision, took up positions on high ridges overlooking Crook's location. Lieutenant Burke, Crook's longtime aide and biographer, recorded nervously, quote, the Chiricahua were still fearful of treachery and hung like hawks or vultures to the protecting shadows of inaccessible pinnacles 1,000 feet above our position. End quote. The energy in the camp was very nervous. The scouts all grabbed their weapons and found cover, and no one was exactly sure how this was going to go down. In efforts to bolster a peaceful outcome, some Apache women that had turned themselves in waved white flower bags and called for the warriors up along the ridge to come down and that Crook only wanted peace. And finally, a delegation of several scouts, including Peaches, went up to parley, though I have conflicted reports about whether they had been sent for by Geronimo or had been sent up by Crook. This delegation was able to persuade some of Geronimo's followers to come down and see the camp themselves, but it wouldn't be until evening that Geronimo himself would come, announcing to Mickey Free that he would like to see the general. But Crook decided that he had to take a hard line with this fearsome leader and therefore decided that he was going to bluff a little bit. After all, it wasn't like his position was that strong. He was knee-deep in enemy country, and there was nothing really to stop the Apache from slipping away if they wanted to. My sources here get a bit muddled, with Geronimo biographer Robert M. Utley saying that on the night of May 20th, the Apache leader tried to speak with Crook, 
but he wouldn't respond, instead just silently finishing his dinner. And according to Utley, Geronimo asked, through Mickey Free, to be allowed to come to San Carlos, to which Crook was indifferent, simply saying that any surrender had to be unconditional. And it wouldn't be until the next morning that Geronimo would try again. But, according to historian Edwin R. Sweeney, on the night of the 20th, there was a large dance held in which the scouts joined in with their Chiricahua cousins, and it wouldn't be until the next morning that Crook sat down to breakfast with Geronimo, Nietzsche, Chato, and others. Then again, author Paul Andrew Hutton shares a story about Crook actually going bird hunting the morning of the 21st and being sort of kind of captured by Geronimo, and this led to Crook sitting down to talk with him. I don't really believe the hunting story, however, mainly because Geronimo taking Crook captive is something for sure that Utley would have put into his biography, and an incident like that is important enough that it surely would have gone into Sweeney's massive tome. I mean, that book is nearly 600 pages long and goes into everything. It's not like Sweeney was worried about cutting things out for length. However it came about, on the morning of May 21st, only 20 days after kicking off his campaign, Crook sat down with the important Chiricahua leaders for a very important talk. Geronimo will later admit that he was astonished Crook was there in the first place. Sweeney says that he also began to believe that Crook had supernatural powers comparable or even more potent than his own. It was the only way an American could have found their sanctuary, he thought. He would also say that he thought Crook, quote, was so powerful that he could command the sun, the moon, and everything, end quote. Which, I guess, put Crook in a very good bargaining position. So, remember kids, it's always good going into a negotiation with your enemy believing you possess superpowers. Crook would say during this meeting that all he wanted was peace and friendship and to take the people back to San Carlos. He then upped his bluffing game by telling Geronimo, quote, I'm not going to take your arms from you because I am not afraid of you, end quote. Psychologically, that was a master stroke, and it worked. At this point, Geronimo asked to be able to return to the reservation. But we shouldn't think that he was completely and utterly cowed. Geronimo was capable of incredible mood swings, vacillating between passiveness and aggression, and this is a very good example. Because even as he begs Crook to let him come into San Carlos and stop all the fussing and a feudin', he went back to his warriors to talk about vengeance. Most of the warriors were angry about Crook and his scouts finding them, and felt that they needed to exact revenge, especially on those darn turncoat Apache scouts. Their plan was not necessarily subtle, but it had the beauty of simplicity. In effect, it went like this. They would hold another dance and would invite the Apache scouts to join. Chiricahua women in particular would entice the scouts to participate, and then, while everyone was having a great time, the warriors would sneak up and slit the throats of all the scouts. Like I said, not exactly subtle, but elegant in its simplicity. No idea, by the way, how they planned to do this all at once, seeing as the scouts outnumbered the Chiricahua warriors, and then they still had Crook's men to deal with. According to Sweeney, this plan hit the skids when they tried to rope in a certain Chiricahua Apache warrior. Now, this warrior had been raised by the Sipiku Apache, so they and the White Mountain Apache were like family to him. 
and he downright refused to participate, which started giving others pause too. Geronimo tried to pressure him into going along, but at this the man pointed out that his war record against Mexicans and whites was unimpeachable. He'd done everything for the good of the Chiricahua, but he had to put his foot down at this, and he didn't want to hear anything about this plot again. And that really took the wind out of the plot's sails. So either the dance happened that night, but was cut short by Al Sieber, or Sieber commanded his men not to attend. Uh, but however it happened, the uneasy peace continued without the bloodbath. In the meantime, more of the dispersed Chiricahua were arriving at Crook's camp. Loco and Old Nana had now come in with their men, and by May 23rd, some 220 Chiricahua were now receiving rations from Crook. Then, on May 28th, Geronimo, Chato, Chihuahua, and other leaders brought in an additional 116 Apache. But this in and of itself presented a problem. Crook didn't have that much food to spare. To stretch things out as far as he could, he had some of these stolen Mexican cattle butchered and encouraged the women to bake the mezcal they had gathered. Finally, though, the general realized he had to get moving or the people would all starve right then and there. However, the Chiricahua told him, there were still other groups and leaders out there that needed to be rounded up. Most prominent was probably the exiled Hua, who was still out there somewhere with his small group. And this is where Crook makes a decision that will really come back to bite him in terms of popular support. He let some stay behind to gather up the rest. Crook got the main body moving at the end of May, but he allowed a full 60 men, including Geronimo, Naiche, Chato, and Chihuahua, to go out and find more Apache. They also promised to find and bring in the cough-cough, missing Charlie McComas. These leaders promised to meet up with Crook and his column, you know, sometime soon. And to be fair, they would keep this promise, sort of, kind of, but it would take them months to do so. Crook also made darn sure that they knew that they did not have any sort of protection from Mexican troops or American civilians while they were on their own away from his camp. So Crook's company, which included 384 of the Apache that he had set out to capture, crossed back into Arizona on June 11th, 1883. For those keeping score at home, it had taken him one month and 11 days to march into Mexico, find the Apache, persuade them to come in peacefully, and to get them across the border again. If you don't count travel time back, he had managed to keep his word to his scouts, that they would capture the renegade Apache inside of 40 days. It was truly a remarkable moment for Crook, and the reason that he was held in such high esteem by both the Americans and the Apache in general. However, it's right about here that the rug started to get pulled out from under his feet. While Crook may have thought the hardest part was behind him, he soon found renewed difficulties in Arizona. Indian policy was always highly political, and it was a political mess that the general returned to. So, join me next week as Crook finds himself in a prolonged fight with a recalcitrant Indian agent and a system that wanted to punish all the men, women, and children he had spent so much effort persuading to give up peacefully. And then there was the fact that he kept waiting, and waiting, and waiting for Geronimo, 
to eventually keep his word. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.